Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulda. I'm a podcast host and a professor and someone who's deeply concerned about your understanding of science. Now, today we're going to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I've always been very interested in the way in which the organ, any organism, whether animal, plant, fungus, uh, bacteria, the way they interpret the rotation of the earth evolving under a constant change of light and dark cycles. And there are certain rhythms that are maintained and that are understood by the organism and entrained in the organism. And we call them circadian rhythms. And so today we're going to speak with an expert on circadian rhythms from Michigan State University. But the co-host today is Miles Roberts. How's it going, Miles? I'm doing very well. How are you, Kevin? <laughs> uh, really nice to have you aboard. Now, I met Miles back when he was interviewing for graduate school opportunities. And so you uh, ended up at Michigan State, right? That's correct. I love being here. Yeah, it's an awesome place to land for grad school. I, I sent a few of my undergrads there over the years because you had just an amazing faculty across the board. And that uh, always been a, an outstanding place for plant science. But um, what exactly are you hoping to study during your graduate career? Well, I'd say that my real passion in science is for plant genetics. Plants do all kinds of crazy and beautiful things with their DNA that no other organisms can do. And that's really fascinated me since high school. Besides that, though, I'd really like to gain a uh, found fundamental understanding in fields such as mathematical biology, evolutionary biology, and uh, especially bioinformatics, all of the overlaps between them. So really you could say that my goal is to just become one big biology nerd. <laughs> well, oh, yeah, you, you can... You can join the club. It's um, so when when you um, uh, are thinking about your long term goals, do you have any thoughts about what you would like to be doing, say, ten years from now? Yeah, absolutely. I'd really like to be a professor of plant genetics at a university. However, some of my mentors have gone on to work at agricultural biotechnology companies, and the experiences they've had there seem really rewarding as well. Wherever I end up, though, I know that's Really, I just, A, want to work with plants, and B, I want to do research. Well, I really appreciate you reaching out to be a co-host in this. It's always fun when we have two people answering the, asking the questions and one person answering them. Um, but so, so you had originally uh, discussed uh, inviting today's guest. So could you tell me a little bit about what made her work attractive or having her as a guest? I got to know Ava when I... Uh, first started doing interviews at Michigan State University, and she presented uh, to me when I went into her office some of her 
really interesting work on plant domestication and how circadian rhythms may have changed over the course of domestication. And really, it seemed like her lab was tackling the kinds of questions that I hadn't really seen other people ask before. So really, that's uh, that uniqueness and uh, interest and plant domestication, which is another one of my interests, really drew me to what she was doing. Yeah, me too. That's one of my favorite things. I'm almost, it's almost like a hobby for me, uh, plant domestication. I know some people, you know, my age get sports cars. I think about how crops evolved. Um, but, but, but the beauty of this is that we do have our guest today is Dr. Eva Fare. Um, and I'm sorry for always getting that incorrect, but someone who I feel like I've known for a long time too. Uh, even though we've never met in person, certainly she's very well known from the literature. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Fare. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Uh, actually, you can thank Miles for reaching out. He did a yeah. he, he recommended that we talk to you. And you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, biological clocks have always been fascinating to me, and I've followed this field from the beginning. And so, why is it important? for any organism just to understand what time of day it is? I think the most intuitive um, explanations are the interactions that the organisms have with the environment, which is changing. So if you think of a plant, they cannot do photosynthesis uh, during the night, obviously. So they, uh, they need to prepare. Why would they prepare to do photosynthesis at night, uh, at night if that's not happening? Um, another, or if you are a diurnal animal that is like us that are awake, most, most people are awake during the day, um, and we don't see well at night. So there's no point of, you know, having a lot of energy and activity during the night period. So I think that that's, uh, one of the more basic, uh, ideas of why the organisms have it. But as we study more, I think there, there's more complicated and biochemical reasons of why they are important as well. Well, let me jump in. And, you know, the other part of this that always fascinated me is that uh, that plants, when you, when you speak of photosynthesis, they actually anticipate that the day is coming. So when yeah. you look in the in the late night, you actually start to see the changes towards photosynthesis starting to occur, almost like it's psychic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so think, why? Tell me more about the evolution of that kind of anticipation, and and is why is that important? So, the anticipation is the key. So, if uh, if the organisms would just react to the change, uh, then it wouldn't. We can talked about that later, that wouldn't be called, you don't need a, a clock to do that. No, you just turn on, you have your alarm clock, your external one or your light that just wakes you up. But the problem is that um, you will need, these changes occur at the same time every day. So it's, uh, it's more efficient for the organism to be able to anticipate and these changes cause also stress. So you can imagine that if you just, you're sleeping and you open your eyes and your eyes are, have not been adapted to the light. So it, it takes you a while to adapt to the light. And the similar uh, 
happens to plants as well, highlight is stressful to plants. So uh, it's, it's useful for them to be ready for the light to come on before the light actually comes on. Um, and there are many other things that are happening, like at the end of the day, there might be drought and you need to be ready that it might be drier. Um, does that make sense? I don't know that. No, that's perfect. I just, just things like that are always really exciting to me and thinking about those kinds of adaptive um, responses and how being, uh, you know, the early bird catches the worm kind of philosophy, right? Along that same line, Ava, anyone who has ever had jet lag or experienced jet lag is at least a little familiar with how important their body's sense of time is for their well-being. What kinds of things can happen to a plant if it doesn't have the right time of day? There are a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, the most dramatic ones, I mean, dramatic for us, more visual to see might be if the plant is is not ready to defend itself for a certain pathogen and a certain time of day and the worm comes and say, well, I'm here and the plant is not, you know, fighting back to the worm, so it will be eaten. Um but also other other things that are more microscopic are the stomata are these pores of the plant that they use to take up um, CO2 and they opening and closing as are regulated by the clock. So if if during the day the the stomata will be closed, then they are not going to photosynthesize and they will be in a very bad shape uh, if they just open at night, for example. So that these are some of the things that uh, uh, the plant might be very unhappy, they, their clock is really out of whack. What are some examples of where scientists have first noticed these kind of clock-associated behaviors? The Greeks, there was an a admiral in the Greek army with Alexander that noticed that um, in that Time, they didn't know that there would be circadian so that that thing would continue under constant conditions, but but they noticed uh, diurnal, so DL, light-dark changes in leaf movement of uh, tamarind trees. So leaf movement has been, I think, the, one of the initial uh, phenotypes, as we say, um, for plant circadian rhythms. And in the 18th century, uh, they were able to measure that, confirm that these rhythms continue in the constant darkness. That means that they're, yeah, they can predict them the next day, basically. Um, but these, you can imagine these are kind of harder experiments to do, you know. Um, so, yeah, so I think leaf movement has been um, one of the, one of the phenotypes, but it, they, Linnaeus also, for example, uh, designed this garden uh, with flowers that open at different times of day. So they had, people knew that plants were doing different things at different times um, because flower opening also occurs for different species at different times. Um, so these are the most visual um, aspects. You know, just for clarity, for the audience's sake, What's the difference between a circadian rhythm and a diurnal rhythm? Yeah, so that comes back to what uh, 
Kevin was saying about the anticipation. So um, many rhythms that if you see, you wouldn't know whether that's because, okay, the light turns on and your whatever uh, behavior happens, and that might be just caused, uh, caused by the light-dark cycle directly. Um, however, if you have what we call a circadian rhythm, is because it can be maintained in a constant condition. So if you put your organism under constant light or constant darkness, uh, you will see still oscillations of your behavior, like these leaf movements. So the plants will still move their leaves even if they're in constant light or constant darkness. And mice will continue to have diurnal rhythms and humans even if put in constant light in constant darkness actually only <laughs> um so that that's kind of one of the key characteristics of uh these rhythms and and that allows them to to do the anticipation so if they're just driven by the environment then there's not much of that anticipation uh that can happen the, the organism needs to know, oh, sun will rise at six, it's five, I should get ready and get my leaves in the right position. Since we've uh, heard a little bit about what the characteristics of these circadian rhythms are, I'm curious of how exactly scientists define these uh, clock-related behaviors. Yeah, so one, as I said, one of the key aspects is that you have sustained rhythmicity under constant conditions. Um, that might not be in all constant conditions, but in one type of constant conditions at least. And then uh, the other things that characterize uh, that chronobiologists use to define a circadian clock is that they have what's called temperature compensation. So biochemical reactions, if you increase the temperature slightly, they can change their uh, dynamics very, very fast. Um, however, circadian rhythms have, I guess, the evolutionary pressure to maintain a period length. So the frequency should be about 24 hours. You no, know, you don't want them to run suddenly three times faster and you wake up in the middle of the night. Um, so, so that's what we call temperature compensation. Of course, they are not flat throughout a big range of temperatures, but are relatively constant if, when compared to other biochemical processes. And the other uh, characteristic is that they can be entrained. So for to understand entrainment, the best thing is to think about you having jet lag. So I'm in Michigan and I fly to California, for example, which are three hours uh, behind us. So when the night comes, um, I'm pretty tired early in comparison to the Californian people, uh, the first day. But by the second day, you are adjusting to that new rhythm. However, you can adjust your watch very fast. No, you arrive there, you just change your watch. Your watch entrains automatically by your hand. <laughs> so what your watch is, is doing fine and your body just entrains a bit slower. But there are organisms that entrain pretty quickly um, to, to jet lag type of experiments, yeah. So there are three main 
characteristics that. Yeah, and maybe just I can clarify that for the audience a little bit in that you have to think about this for a second. You're in a period of light and dark, and you see some sort of a response, whether it's um, there's there's cortisol in humans, there's all kinds of things in other animals and plants. You see leaf movements. So you see this going up and down, up and down in the light-dark cycles. And then when you move them to what are called free-run conditions, you move them to constant darkness, they still keep going <laughs> almost. So it's not the light that's driving it. It's this internal oscillator. And that's what makes these so neat because how do you build a clock from chemistry, right? And it's really, really interesting. Well, you we talked a little bit about leaf movements a minute ago, and those are very well established. Um, actually, the guy who discovered the Orion Nebula described the uh, free run conditions of that. I can't remember his name, but um, what are some other plant responses that we think of as under control of the circadian oscillator? Have I mentioned stomata openings? So stomata are these pores where the plants take up gases uh, and they open and close with strong circadian rhythms. Um, so photosynthesis also has a rhythm due to the stomata opening and other processes that we don't understand so well. Um, so stem elongation, leaf expansion are all um, circadian regulated. So the leaf movement are caused by, by growth um, differentiate in different parts of the leaf and the stem. Um, so gene expression changes oscillate. Um, so transpiration of the plant, water movement. Uh, so these are just a few that are, and as I mentioned before, also the stress responses. So how, when are plants getting ready, they can predict different pathogens that will be happening to the, you know, attacking them at different times of day, for example, um, they can predict when it will be hotter during the day. They can predict when it will be colder during the day and be ready to respond to that, to those stresses. Well, I was um, watch watching the early elucidation of the mechanism, okay, starting to undo the clock and figure out its components. And there was some really innovative stuff happening in the mid to late 1990s. And could you talk to us about how firefly proteins were used to understand the fundamental circuits of the clock? Yeah, so those key experiments. So Andrew Miller and, and Steve Kay were the ones, the first ones that actually cloned uh, uh, the luciferase, uh, firefly luciferase gene uh, that had been already used as a reporter, what we call, uh, in other systems, but not to study circadian rhythms. And Basically, a firefly luciferase is when the gene is expressed, it will make that enzyme that makes fireflies glow. And they they want to turn on and off that firefly gene um, to monitor the circadian rhythm. So they had found a promoter, which is part of the gene that regulates when that gene is, is read, and they put it in front of the firefly luciferase gene. And... In some way, they're lucky because firefly luciferase are uh, are great um, enzymes to track rhythms uh, for the because of their biochemical the, the specific 
chemical reactions that they were using. And I thought they, they probably were inspired by initial um, circadian experiments that were done with the endogenous bioluminescence of dinoflagellates. So Beatrice Sweeney in the 50s and the 60s, she had done beautiful work on, on circadian rhythm principles in dinoflagellates. And of course, it would be great to have a glowing plant. And uh, when they generated one, it was, yeah, it's it's much easier to measure than leaf movement. And it also gives you a certain amount of direct molecular connection because you know that gene and you can then study more things in more detail uh, in a genetic and biochemical manner once you have that type of reporter rather than leaf movement, which is a very downstream process. Yeah, it's actually really cool. So let me just add in just for uh, the audience to understand a little bit more about this. So you have this circadian responsive promoter hooked up to the firefly gene and they would use a really cool camera. At the time, must have been extremely expensive. That would just look at... <laughs> It still is. <laughs> yeah, these are these cool, cool CCD cameras that they would use almost for astronomy and other, you know, other ways that are extremely sensitive to light. And you would put this over the plants and, you know, treat them with the appropriate chemistry so that the luciferase would work. And they would basically watch the plants luminesce at specific times of the day. And then if you mutagenize those plants, so you subject them to mutation with either radiation or chemistry, you now can cause errors and defects in the clock. So you had illumination or luminescence happening at the wrong time. And so you would have all the plants doing it, except for one plant was maybe a little early or a little late, or maybe, you know, not at all. And so these were the mutants that allowed them to really start to take apart this biochemical oscillator inside the plant. So really, really neat experiments. So even as someone who's pretty new to the field of plant circadian biology, I've already picked up on the fact that clock researchers can be pretty creative in their approaches. So I was wondering if you had any more examples of, of these novel approaches like using firefly proteins that scientists use to study the clock. So there are other other ways of uh, depending on the phen on your what you call your phenotype that you're measuring you might identify different genes that regulate the system. So um, I think firefly has been the main mechanism, but there are other other. I think Rob McClan was make use of, of the of the characteristic that the stomata will open and close at different times, making the plants more sensitive or less sensitive to toxic gases, for example. So they just spray them at a certain time and looked at the ones that were surviving with the uh, hope that those will have, you know, the stomata will be opening at a different time. Um, and leaf movement has also been used for, for mutant screen, although not so extensively. So I have to say for now, uh, most of the, the phenotypes that have been used to, to identify mutants um, have been firefly. Just because of the extent of the experiment that you need to do, you need to screen thousands and thousands of organisms um, 
and that makes it harder to to use anything else for that. So what do we know about the circadian clock and its role in conferring fitness? So it, it seems like it, it that would be a good thing to have, and does it really? Yeah, that's a good question. We had a meeting last week, a uh, journal club, where we discussed that in the lab. So I think that's a key question, and, and uh, it's interesting how how different, you know, molecular biologists versus ecologists thinks about fitness. So um, Carl Johnson's group did some pioneering and very elegant experiments using cyanobacteria. So there they could have different bacteria that had uh, either the wild type that had a, you know, a normal clock and then they have different mutants with the clock running faster or slower at no clock. And they actually grew them together in a flat. So in that case, you really have true competition. And there you can measure fitness because the more outcome, you know, the more offspring these bacteria have, then uh, you can prove that having a good clock um, provides you a, a evolutionary advantage because those are the ones that will survive. Um, in plants, it has been um, not so straightforward, although there are experiments showing that if you have some of these clock mutants uh, that run slow or fast, uh, they, depending on the internal period, they will grow better under their slower uh, um, or faster environment. Um, but that is not 100% <laughs> uh, clear because the because depending on what what you define slow at fast is important. Um, so I don't want to go into too many technical details, but you have to think that these experiments, you grow the organism in a day that's not 24 hours, but in total might be 20 hours. So 10 and 10 is as if you were living in a different planet that would rotate at a different speed. These have not been so clear in plants, but there's some experiment from Rachel Green, and she she collaborated with some ecologists to truly um, try to understand whether that is, the clock can provide uh, fitness as defined by the ecologists, which is to provide more offspring. So the experiment is they, they grow a bunch of different mutants. Some have a slow clock and some have a fast clock. And they grow them all together under either a short condition so days of 20 hours, for example, or a long condition of days of 28 hours. So when they grew them under the days of 20 hours, so they have like a planet that rotates pretty fast, they, uh, they found that most of these lines had an endogenous clock that was running fast. So basically they reproduced Carl Johnson's experiment but using Arabidopsis plants. Um, so I think those experiments uh, clearly define, uh, show, demonstrate that the clock has a fitness advantage in plants. Uh, so basically, when you have mutations that make you faster, you uh, do better on shorter days. And if your clock runs slower, you do better on longer days. And it really shows that the clock is super important. Sorry, I might need to correct you there because that's kind of a, a, a an important 
uh, when you say short clock, uh, short days, this is not a photo period short day. It's not that the days are only eight hours and the night are 16 and the long days are 16 hours and the, and the nights are eight hours. It's like the whole thing is 20 hours. Right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I said that. I said that incorrectly. Yeah, a uh, a on a short day, meaning like a 20 hour day, versus a 29 hour day or 28 hour exactly, day. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. Because when we start folding in photo period, it gets even it gets more, more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so today we're we're speaking about circadian rhythms. We're speaking with Dr. Ava Fare. And she's an associate professor at Michigan State University. And uh, we're joined by Miles Roberts, who's also the co-host today. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. The forces of disinformation are well-financed and flood the media from Facebook to Netflix with false information about food, medicine, and agriculture. So how do we counter that? Luckily, many have taken up the mantle to provide good sources of information and media. These are friends of the podcast that can use your support. That might just be sharing their work in your social media space, or maybe some financial assistance towards a new project. A great example. Dr. Hitty Borzma and Sugar Rush Films are producing a new documentary about glyphosate. They do beautiful work on a very limited budget, and the videos are viewed for free. Donate to their effort at Sugar Rush Films. Dr. Alan McEwen's new book, DNA Demystified, is a superb primer on the basics of DNA and modern applications. The Science Facts and Fallacies podcast is Kevin Fulta and Cameron English covering today's hot science stories. I listen because I like to hear Fulta try to be entertaining. That's at geneticliteracy.org. No Ideas Media, that's no K-N-O-W, produces outstanding short videos that clarify issues in agriculture. The Safe Food Blog covers important issues in farming and biotechnology at safefood, S-A-I-F-O-O-D, dot C-A. You can help by visiting and sharing these resources with your audiences, write reviews, maybe even send a few dollars to support their efforts. These are people helping to clarify the confusion around food and farming. And now, back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today we're speaking with Dr. Ava Farre. She's a uh, associate professor at Michigan State University and studies circadian rhythmicity. Uh, easy for me to say. She's been a centerpiece in this literature for a, quite a while, going back a number of years. And um, it really is nice to have her on the podcast. So let's dive back in and talk about the guts of a clock. And if you think about this, how difficult it, you know, it must be to have biochemistry cycle in a rhythmic and predictable way. And so how can, can you tell us a little bit about how a biological system makes a clock? And are those clocks 
analogous to say mechanical clocks, you know, that, that, that we maybe have in our homes. So, um, biological clocks are a build of what we call feedback loops. So they're genes, proteins that interact with each other. So one can act positively on the next one. And the sec that second one adds negatively on the first one. Uh, but not if you have only two without any other things going through, you can imagine that that system will reach an equilibrium. So you need some sort of delay between one axe on the other and the second one axe on the first one. And that makes the clocks then more complicated because they have other uh, pieces that need to go in there. Um, so I'm talking about biological clocks. They they are actually biochemically, they can be very different, um, although we don't have a fully good understanding of all the clocks so far. Um, so I can only tell you the perspective from what has been characterized so far. Um, so for example, in bacteria, they have a very elegant clock that is made basically on proteins. So if you put these proteins together in a tube, they uh, they do things on each other. So one phosphorylates another protein and that phosphorylation, the modification oscillates with a period of 24 hours. So that I found that that was the most fascinating experiment for me ever. So when they, so you can imagine that you just you isolate these proteins and you add ATP, which is this molecule that gives some sort of energy to biological systems, and that protein will be modified, and that modification will occur in a with a 24-hour oscillation rhythm. Um, so this. This was discovered in cyanobacteria and um, in other systems so far we we are like in animals and plants um, the clocks that have been characterized so far are um, have gene expression so you have one the one gene is expressed it makes a protein that protein uh, acts on a second one promoter and regulates its expression and so forth, and you have a, a strong, a complicated network of these uh, interactions. Um, so there have been people, you know, if you think about um, the cell cycle, which is also an oscillatory process, um, works in a similar way, although the cell cycle needs to be stopped at certain points and the clock doesn't stop. Um, so the mechanisms are slightly different, but they have also the feedback system. Um, so there are some design principles that are the same in all clocks, um, although the mechanisms and the genes are very different from each other in different organisms. And that's kind of one of the also fascinating things of clocks. Uh, if you think about the cell division process um, that if you're just looking at eukaryotes like animal and plants, they have similar genes. You can find them and you say, oh, that's a, that's a cell cycling gene. You can identify that from the sequence. But the circadian clocks are very different from each other. And we have no understanding of how the circadian clocks have evolved if, you know, our, our 
circadian genes are very, very different than a plant circadian genes, even if our cell division genes are not so different from a plant cell division genes. If clocks are mainly driven by the status of proteins and genes and feedback loops, I'm kind of curious how these clocks avoid uh, kind of random external forces from throwing them out of whack. The real world can be <laughs> kind of messy sometimes and environmental cues can fluctuate somewhat randomly. So I'm kind of curious how clocks uh, prevent those kind of fluctuations from, from getting them all out, of, all out of sync. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um... So in general, we, we like to, the circadian biologists, they like to use this word called gating, that kind of, um, so it's another of these nerdy terms, but it basically, uh, the systems are, um, have evolved in a way that these signals cannot get into your, um, clock at all times of day. For example, uh, in the case of the plant clock, you wanted, as I say, you know, if you, if the day, the day length changes during the season, so your dawn is changing, so you need to, your clock needs to adapt to that change as well a little bit. So you don't want it to be activated, uh, at the wrong time, but you want to activate it at the right time so that you know, if the days are getting longer, you are ready for that longer day. So, for example, um, key morning genes, they're actually activated by light. So the light signaling can get into those genes only at the end, middle end of the night. But if you do it at the end of the, in the middle of the day, nothing happens. So... That's kind of, I think, the main mechanism by which the clocks are relatively robust, uh, that they, they have evolved such that the environmental signals don't, they, they only reach them at the time that it's more useful for the clock to know that signal, you know. So is it useful whether if there's light or not during the middle of the day? That's not clearly the case because they know it's, a, you know, you're a clock gene. You know it's the day because you just say so. <laughs> uh, but if it's in the middle of the night, you say, oh, we need to be checking there whether the days are, you know, the dawn is coming earlier or the in the evening whether the days are getting longer. Um, does that make sense? So the clock is is perturbed by a lot of these environmental factors, but just a very specific times of day. Um, so that's kind of another of these fascinating aspects of how these, these systems, these networks evolved, um, because they do integrate a lot of signals, and the more people study, the more signals can modify the clock. Um, but they... It doesn't happen all the time. It just happens in certain windows. There are, if a plant has many uh, circadian oscillators in it, we've kind of mentioned that different cells may 
uh, each have a different oscillator, then how do plants ensure that all of their clocks keep set to the same time? How do they prevent, say, one leaf from running on mountain time while the other is on uh, Eastern Standard Time? Yeah, so earlier we thought that that was the case. So they that each uh, plant cell will have a the same basically clock and it runs independently of the other cells. And you can think about it and say, oh, all the cells in a leaf they can get the same env environmental signals, so they don't need to. Um, you know, they have the same photoreceptors, they are photosynthesizing, so they will have the same information, let's say, than any other cell. And that's different from animals, no? So your light goes through your eyes and if you have a muscle or a liver cell, there's no way for them to know what's going on. So, um, so that was the initial idea. And now we, we think that there's, there's more to it. So that they will be, there's some communication under different organs. So you can imagine that the shoot, which receives different type of environmental signals and light, will need to communicate to roots that don't receive uh, a lot of uh, light information. So there has been different uh, experiments uh, from different labs, for example, Paloma Mas and other uh, groups trying to investigate how how that is happening. Um, so there is some communication um, between the different organs of the plant. Um, how much goes into in the same tissue within the different cells, we don't know that so much. Um, but definitely there's more more communication in a plant that we, we thought there would be. Um, and that's um, we are onto it, so I hope we we get a better idea about that in the next years or so. Kind of mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, the different mechanisms underlying circadian rhythms can differ quite a lot between uh, different uh, domains of life, and I'm just curious how similar actually are animal clocks and plant clocks, are there uh, any kind of similar genes involved in that process or maybe uh, similar kinds of proteins? So we, it depends what you define as similar. So there are uh, type of transcription factors that, uh, like BHLH transcription factors that have been found in other, um, in different systems, animals and plants are involved in the clock or certain uh, promoter elements that are bound by these transcription factors like E boxes that are called E boxes in animals or G boxes in plants. But it's these are way these genes are very way off. So it's kind of hard to say whether they actually evolve from the same thing. You know what I mean? So the net the the similarities come from the structure of the network of these uh, regulatory feedback loops. So they all have these activators and repressors, and they all have regulation at the protein level. So uh, these transcription factors, then they are, 
themselves are regulated by proteins that degrade them or modify their activity by phosphorylation, for example. And these in, in between inputs, they are the ones that cause these necessary delays uh, in, the, in the network that can sustain the oscillations, I believe. So this is all based on theoretical work. So when you compare mathematical models of the different oscillators, um, they're kind of similar to each other, um, but the actual genes are, are slightly different. But it's important to get the perspective that a lot of signaling networks in organisms will generate oscillations, but they might not be sustained. So these feedback uh, mechanisms are really um, a key process that are used by many, many signaling processes. And then somehow the clocks have been able to, to um, kind of not hijacking, but taking that system a step further to make this oscillation sustainable, you know, um, under constant conditions. When we talk about the comparisons of the animal and plant clocks, you know, a lot of the research that came from the plant clock came out of Drosophila, out of the fruit fly, where certain rhythms for emergence from the pupae, that kind of thing, were all gated by the clock. Um, but these things kind of happened at the same time in my mind, yet the animal people seem to get the Nobel Prize and a lot more accolades for this. Um, some of the stuff, though, like uh, the, the use of cryptochromes in forming the clock, that came from plants, and at least originally. And uh, so am I getting this wrong, or should the plant people have been recognized for this a little bit more? I mean, animal people have been studying molecular clocks much earlier than plant people. So they found the first clock gene per before any plant clock gene. So plant clock genes were basically after 2000, we, we found our top one. It might have been the first one that was characterized uh, more at the molecular level more. And then it kind of speed up fast. But the animal... People. They have been in the 70s and 80s. They they were doing mutant screens on flies. You know, they were way the fly people really were uh, pioneers in that sense. Um, but I have to say, as I mentioned before, those experiments with with the cyanobacteria that demonstrate biochemically how a clock can work in a test tube. I think that should be much more recognized. <laughs> Because they're they're uh, just amazing the level of understanding for us as humans, you know, of what's going on at that level. So um, I think in the plant clock we still have a lot a lot to learn, and I think we're in a good now pace with um, in the animal field. But um, uh, yeah, so I, I I still think I'm I'm for the big prize for that uh, those Japanese. Uh, researchers that uh, that discovered that biochemical clock in the cyanobacteria. Well, we've talked uh, about a couple of different kinds of plants that have well-studied clocks, Arabidopsis, Thaliana being one of them, but really all kinds of plants have clocks, including the crops that we grow for food. Of course, crops differ from most plants in that they've been 
altered really dramatically by domestication. So has domestication altered the clocks in crops? Uh, that's what we think, right? I mean, that's our working hypothesis right now. <laughs> so the when we measure, now that we can measure more rhythms in different plants, we see that there's a lot of variation within the same uh, genus and species uh, of the clocks, of the speed of the clock. So um, we, we don't have a, a good understanding of what that happening. So we, we see it in natural populations, but also in between the natural populations and the domesticated uh, versions of, uh, of the plants. And we, several people are working with different species and we see, for example, on tomato, they, they discover that the cultivated tomato had a, a slower clock uh, than the wild tomato. And their hypothesis was that, okay, the wild tomato evolved in close to the equator where the days, uh, the photo period, so the day length is uh, similar during the uh, all seasons. However, during domestication, tomato was moved up north and there the days in the summer are much longer during the growing season. So the argument was that a slow clock might help uh, plants grow under long photo periods. Um, so that's an elegant hypothesis. Um, why that would then, however, that doesn't seem to to occur in all in all plant species. So, um, what are the changes that? Um, let me rephrase. So. What are these clock changes related to the physiological changes is kind of unclear um, at this point. There, there might be other things, not only photoperiods, but other adaptations um, that the clock period influences. Of course, it could be way off, you know, it could be just that the circadian period is an artifactual. <laughs> uh, I'm just playing devil advocate here. So it might be that. You know, we measure these plants under these artificial constant light conditions and we see that their clock change, um, but that doesn't really, uh, what we're seeing there, it doesn't really represent what's happening under natural conditions. We might be seeing something else. So I think it, it's important to study the clocks under and the natural light dark cycles of different day lengths because those were really the the pressure, the environmental pressure that the plants have or that we as domesticators selected plants that were growing well under particular environmental conditions. Um, I think I did digress there a little bit, but I hope that that, it's not so clear what the, there are differences there in, in circadian clock characteristics, but we haven't been able to link them well to specific physiological responses that could um, explain why these domesticated plants are look different. Um, and what we as, as farmers have selected for is kind of unclear at this point. See, so it seems like domestication and its effects on the clock are still kind of 
at the edge of, of the uh, clock research field. But I'm curious what, uh, what other topics you think are also at the edge of this field. It seems like whenever I think of plant clocks, there's scientists have just identified a whole vast network of proteins and genes that interact with each other. Do you think there's more to be discovered there? Oh, I think there, there's still a lot. So, for example, uh, I had I was mentioning that in uh, eukaryotes so far, we we think the clocks or oh, the clocks we have described are built on these regulatory networks of transcription and translation and protein modification. However, there are experiments that demonstrate that translation is not required for a, some circadian outputs. So there's a layer there that we have no idea what's going on there. So they had discovered that if you block translation, so the production of proteins, then you still have some circadian uh, phenotypes that are at that point biochemical. So the modification of one protein occurs independently of any of these regulatory networks that we have described. That means there's all these layers that we don't know what is going on at that point. And I, I think the challenge there, again, is to have a good reporter, because right now you need to do very tedious biochemical studies to, to measure these rhythms. And there's no way of doing a mutant screen and finding uh, regulators of that hidden oscillator. Um, so I think that, that that's a, a fascinating and challenging frontier there, uh, not only for plants, but in animals, because it seems that there might be more conservation than we thought at that hidden level at this point uh, that we initially, um, that I have, I have been talking about. So there might be another hidden level of a circadian clock that is common to all organisms that we don't know uh, so far. <laughs> well, that's what they call job security, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> no, always more things to discover, hopefully, because if there's not, we're, we don't, we're, out, of, we're out of a job. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today, you know, Miles and Ava. Um, so Dr. Ferre, if, if, if people want to learn more about your work, um, is there a good place to follow your lab, either online or social media? I just have a website. Yeah, I don't have Twitter, or um, but yeah, people can go on the website and can see what type of work we do. We work on on plants and some algae that I find also very fascinating. So uh, and they can also reach me if they have any questions. But there are summaries of our work there. That's great. And sometime in the future, let's talk about algae. So let's uh, let's do this again and just focus on. I, I don't even remember the name of the creature that you study, but, uh, but what's the name of that algae? Uh, Nanochloroxis. Nanochloroxis. <laughs> All right, that sounds like a household cleaner. Um, that's yeah. great, though. But let's um, for really small things. Uh, so we'll go back and uh, take a look at that next time. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks, Miles. Really appreciate you thinking about about this topic. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. It was a pleasure to be here.
Yeah, and keep me posted as you move through your career. It really will be exciting to keep in touch. Absolutely. And to all the listeners, as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Continue to write your wonderful reviews on iTunes and other places where you consume podcast media. Uh, on iTunes, we have one, <laughs> all fives except for one three. So we, <laughs> whoever thought we should... <laughs> We should get a solid C. You know, we can dilute that out a little bit. So go, you know, leave a nice review. And um, and uh, really appreciate all your support on Patreon, which allows us to uh, share this podcast more widely through using social media to promote it. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal view of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.